Morning, everybody. Um, if you would open with me, please, to Proverbs 15, 1 through 4, will be our passage for this morning. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful morning that you've given us, God. Lord, I thank you for everyone who is here, Lord, um, everyone who is absent, God. Lord, thank you for... Uh, keeping us safe as we travel this morning, God. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, use me to um, share your message. Um, Lord, I just pray that after, through this sermon, we would all come away with um, a greater love for you and a greater knowledge of you. pray all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. So, before I get started... I'm going to be reading a bit from my notes this morning because I didn't rehearse as much as I should have. I just finished a biography on Winston Churchill, and he would rehearse eight to ten times before a speech, and his favorite place to rehearse was in the bathtub, and I did, never had time to take a bath, so I never got to rehearse. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I also don't know how long we're going to go. It's uh, about 9.50 right now, so we could, I won't go past 10.30, and, but I might, we might have an extended amount of fellowship time. Okay. So when Cody gave me this text to preach on, we met in, I don't know, August or so, and he said, hey, you're going to be preaching on Proverbs 15, 1 through 4. So I was like, oh, you know, that's a good passage. Great. Um, I love Proverbs. It's one of my favorite books. And, uh, but as I began studying, I began to think, like, oh, wow, you, this is a treasure chest. You can go for ages with this. So I just began to pray, Lord, you know, what do you want me to share with everybody. And he said, first of all, you don't have to say anything because I'm going to be speaking through you. And then he said, just treat this like you're searching for buried treasure, right? Dig as deep as you can and find some great applications. And then most importantly, apply them to yourselves. So this is, I'm calling this message like a journal entry message to you guys because it's all to myself. Um, so, and it's plain and simple. So, um, we're going to mostly stay in Proverbs, and then we have some, I have some other illustrations throughout the Bible. And then I want to focus today mostly, try to, about what we want our words to be like, rather than what we don't want them to be like. I was listening recently to a podcast, and the guy speaking said um, that he had recently heard an illustration about a NASCAR driver, and... and uh, when you're first learning to be a racer, they don't, and as you train, you don't, when you're driving, you don't, going around a curve, you don't look at the wall and stay away from the wall. Your, your steering is naturally going to follow your eyesight. So you keep your eyes straight on the road. So I thought, I think this is a good parallel here. We want to focus on what we want to do rather than focus so much on what we don't want to do. And also like a counterfeit um, like an inspector who studies money. He studies the real thing, not the counterfeit bill. Um, and then I didn't 
I have some points in here, but I just want to point out, too, that the most important thing we can do with our words is share the love of Christ with people, share the gospel. Okay, so here's my thesis statement or the premise. The words we say have a direct influence on those around us and on future generations to come for good or for evil, whether we like it or not. So we're going to look at some guidelines for our speech and how to use our speech to glorify God in our everyday interactions with others, whether it's family members or friends or people we run into on the street. So let's look at verse 1 here. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So I began thinking of this, and I thought, you know, this is pretty much opposite of what we would usually think. Usually, if something, is, something hard is coming towards an object, whatever object it's traveling towards, let's see if I can do this simply, this object must be harder than the object traveling towards it to repel it, right? So this first line in verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, kind of seems totally opposite, like a baseball bat and a, and a ball or um, what other illustrations? Or since we're in Texas, a gun with an animal, something like that. Um, so, so why does this soft answer turn away something that is seemingly more forceful than a soft answer, which is a harsh word? So after looking through scripture, I have a couple of conclusions. And I know there are, we could find many, 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 but these are just a couple, okay? So the first one is shock value. When someone comes at you with an angry spirit or a harsh word, they're not expecting you to give a soft answer in return for their harsh one, right? Normally, if I were to say something rude to somebody else, I've, I'm kind of defensive and ready for them to spit something back at me. So let's flip, if you will, to Judges 8, 1 through 3. And here we have a great example. Gideon has just conquered with 300 men right about 120,000. Um, let's see. Yeah. In verse 10, you can see that the, the uh, Midianite army is, a, is there were 15,000 men remaining, and there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So Judges 8, 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you've done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So here we have Gideon being approached by the Ephraimites after a battle that Gideon and the Ephraimites have both been involved in um, with the Midianites. And so the backstory here is, we all know this, but Gideon, God sorted, God uh, pared down Gideon's army to 300 men from uh, 30, right around 30,000. Um, and so towards the end, after Gideon and his 300 men start chasing the Midianites, Gideon asks for aid from Ephraim. So the Ephraimites come and they cut off the Midianites' retreats retreat, and then they capture and behead their two princes. So, so, um, so we would, I mean, I would ask, well, okay, so they just conquered these two princes and were key in helping defeat the Midianites. Why did they, why are they coming to Gideon now and saying, hey, we, you should have involved us sooner? Um, 
and and uh, he didn't. So they're angry because he didn't involve them earlier. So these are great examples of how not to be content with what you've been given or what you how you've been involved with something. Um, so then, when Gideon paints the reality of how much the the Ephraimites did um, to help to help defeat the Midianites, their anger subsides. They're appeased. So they like, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, we forgot we beheaded those two princes. Oh, well, and we cut off their retreat. Oh, so he just presented them with what was reality. Um, and they, they, um, I think they had like a small uh, short-term memory loss or something like that. Um, so, so when somebody comes at you with guns blazing, they're ready for you to fight back. And when, when, when we respond with a soft answer, it takes them by surprise. So shock factor is number one. And I'm going to go on a small rabbit trail just for a second because those are always fun. Um, there, I have two sub points for this one. And that is that, um, well, it, they're in Gideon's response. So we ask, how did Gideon respond? 1A is humbly. We have Judges 8, 2, and 3. He said, and, and he, Gideon, said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest? Grape harvest of Abiezer. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Whoa, that's massive humbling right there. They, um, God just used Gideon in a huge way, and he's lowering himself beneath these Ephraimites. Um, so Gideon made little of himself in order to make much of their deed. So, and the Ephraimites did do a lot. But um, Gideon just defeated 120,000 men with 300 men. God used him. And he had every right in the world to, to get stiff-necked and brag about it, but he didn't. Um, and if we think about it, often at the root of harsh words or some conflict like we have with the Ephraimites and Gideon, pride is often the root of it. That's just a little note I had here. Okay, so and then two, we have one A and then like, I wasn't sure what to do, call this. 2B? No, can't call it 2B. So I called it 2A. He overlooked what could have easily become a B in his bonnet, right? That's a common saying that we say that we have sometimes, back in the day at least. Um, so he could have held a grudge. I mean, these guys, these guys come to him saying, hey, you should have involved us earlier. And it would have been really easy for him to just have, have said, well, you know what? You're not happy with that? you know, and stomped off or whatever. But um, he didn't. He, he responded to them. Their anger subsided, and he moved on to his next task, and we can see that in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. I was reading that last night. Exhausted yet pursuing. That is the best ending for a sentence. That's how I, told, I mean, that's how we want to be in pursuing Christ, right? It's going to be tiring sometimes, and it's going to be hard. Exhausted yet pursuing. I just love that. Um, so it's, going to, it's easy to let a grudge fester and become bitterness, right? But follow Gideon's example here and don't. Um, and then just in stark contrast to how Gideon responded to the Ephraimites, let's, let's just flip over a couple pages here to Judges 12, 1 through 7. This is um, Jephthah who's another judge here. Um, and same group of people, same Ephraimites here, or same tribe at least. 
The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed. Let me make sure I'm reading the right verse here. And they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, saying, struck Ephraim, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So, and it's kind of, kind of intriguing if you like some more history there, a little, a few verses down, like how they determined who the Ephraimites were. But anyway, we have here totally different response than what, how Gideon um, responded to the Ephraimites and a totally different outcome. Okay, so our second point here is that, just one second. Okay, so, excuse me. So the second point is that they have, I'm going to recap here just so we remember. We have a couple conclusions here about a soft answer turning away wrath. So the second point is they have our soft answer in return to a harsh word has corrosive value. So you're probably thinking right now, like, okay, Beach, you're going a little a little nutty there. What in the world? Corrosive, you know, means, like, to break down or to um, eat away at, maybe. So it doesn't really have a positive, a positive um, definition in our mind, I guess. So let's go really quickly to Proverbs 25, 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. So, I wondered what, like, okay, what would, what, I mean, break a bone, what could that mean, really? Um, and then, the Lord brought to mind a bone of contention, right? So that's like something that a couple people disagree over, or it could be, it could even be a grudge against someone because of something they've done. Um, so whatever, so a bone of contention would basically be something that comes between a couple of people. Um, and in First Samuel twenty-five, y'all can turn there if you don't, if you want, you don't have to. First um, Samuel twenty-five, ten through twenty-two. I'm going to start in verse six. We have a great example of something that can come between people, and then a soft answer totally changing the outcome. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, let me give a little backstory here. There, um, David and his men are out in the wilderness and they come across uh, Nabal and Abigail's estate, basically. So, and David's men are protecting the shepherds of Nabal and Abigail. Then, then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? I'm reading chapter 26. Sorry. 25, verse 6. Um, I wondered why I wasn't seeing any, like, shepherds in there, wilderness. I knew I'd seen that a couple days ago. Um, okay, so 1 Samuel 25, 10 through 22, starting in verse 6. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. 
Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to man, men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. There were a wall to us both by night and day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master, and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak of him. Wow. I just thought of something, but this servant is a pretty loyal guy. <clears throat> pretty amazing character quality right there. He, he, he um, knows that Nabal is a worthless man, and yet he still comes and tells his wife, hey, David's going to come and sack the place, basically, if, if something isn't done. <clears throat> then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came, came down toward her, and she met them. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now we know why maybe the servant was a little protective. Uh, <clears throat> so here we go. Now Abigail and David meet. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal means fool. Um, Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And, and now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And she goes on to compliment him, basically. And then verse 32, um, And David said to, Nabal, to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Um, blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. Um, and then 35, then David received from her hand what she brought with him, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Somewhere in there, I missed. Hold on. Um, 
if anyone sees it, you can holler out. His basically his um, when she brought that to him, he just cooled off. Um, totally changed the outcome. So they have. Uh, let's see. So Abigail's appeasement of David's anger broke the bone of contention or the grudge or what was irritating David um, that David held against her husband. So this passage literally fleshes out Proverbs 15.1. And we've all heard stories about people who have been pacified with a soft answer or um, you know, a, a, when they come with a, with a harsh word, somebody, a soft answer turns them away. I know there have been some church neighbors were not very happy when the building was going up and Mr. Welch just talked to them and they, their attitude totally changed eventually. So, um, so just concluding with this verse, let's flip to Proverbs 16.1. It's just a couple pages over. Um, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So I know this is talking about our future plans and what's going to happen in the future, but in our flesh, there's no way, no way we can respond with a soft answer when somebody comes at us with a harsh word. So when we have the Lord with us, though, we can do all things. He can, we can do it through his power. Um, and then I want to just briefly, briefly mention Isaac. Um, in Genesis, we don't have to turn there, but Genesis 26, um, and he has, he's building these wells and quarreling with um, Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines, I think, um, quarreling with Abimelech's men, Isaac's men and Abimelech's men. And um, so eventually, Isaac and Abimelech make peace. Abimelech has heard about all that the Lord's done for Isaac. Um, And so I just wrote down that another thing that this verse, uh, soft answer turns away wrath. Another thing we should all strive to be is peacemakers. Um, peacemakers turn conflicts into opportunities to honor God and show love to others. Okay, so let's go to verse 2 uh, Verse two here. So, and I want to focus on the second half of the verse. 30 seconds. I um, Earlier this week, I was getting into verse 1. I was like, oh, man. I could just go forever on this one verse. And then I thought, oh, no, I'll finish it in five minutes, and it's 10 after 10. So I'm like, okay. Um, So verse 2, and I want to focus on the second half of the verse real quick. But the mouths of fools pour out folly. So in England, one of the traditional sides they serve with fish and chips is this green pea mash. It's like, it's green peas. Imagine mashed potatoes with green food coloring in it, and you'll get the picture. And they serve it right alongside your fish and chips with the fries or whatever. So, and they look repulsive. Every time you're at a restaurant, there, we were with somebody, and every time he gets mashed peas, he's just, like, disgusted. So, and they, they're not pretty either. So, so imagine, like, a huge silo full of these green peas, or something, you can put whatever in there that you want that's nasty. Um, and so, imagine this huge silo filled with these green peas, and somebody opens the lever, Right? and green peas start to spill out, and then the lever breaks, and there's no stopping the green peas from going, they're going to fill up the world. They're everywhere. I mean. Um, so, so this is kind of the same way that it is with a fool and his speech, right? He, 
ooh, watch out when that lever opens because there's no stopping it. And it's everywhere. So it's repulsive, and it just keeps coming. So I want to quickly go to four verses here. I'm going to get, Tim, will you read Proverbs 13, 16? Daniel, will you read Proverbs 12, 23? And as we read Proverbs 18, 2. And first, I'll, go to, I'll read Proverbs 15, 28 here. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And then who's ever... Tim, you ready? Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. 1223? You ready? Sorry. Uh, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Here we go. And 18 too. will find no pleasure in understanding but delights in airing his opinion. So from these verses, we can see at least at least three characteristics of a fool's speech. Number one, Proverbs 13, 16. In everything, the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. He attempts to impress others through his speech with how much he knows or he thinks he knows. And I say attempts because his knowledge isn't really knowledge. It's just folly. And a wise person will see that. So Notice the word flaunt here in this verse. I don't know what translation you guys have. I have the ESV here. Um, but the word flaunt just means to display ostentatiously. And ostentatiously, he defines as, Webster defines as showy or gaudy or intended for vain display. So a foolish man is not going to hesitate to share what he knows about every subject known to man, even if he knows nothing about any subject known to man. Just to impress people. His speech is always seeking to glorify himself. Number two, Proverbs twelve twenty three. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. A fool doesn't share his opinion with just one person or just a small group of people. He wants to announce it to the world, everyone. He wants everyone to know how smart that he is. So, and little does he know that he's removing all doubt of his foolishness in Proverbs seventeen twenty eight says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. So a fool is only happy when everyone knows his opinion and how smart he really is. Smart. Um, and number three, Proverbs 18.2. I love this verse. So good. Um, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A foolish man's speech reveals his lack of understanding and he babbles about this and that and takes no satisfaction in simply listening. And as we all know, listening is a key to learning. So here we go. Three characteristics of a wise man's speech as well. And pretty much the same verses, Proverbs thirteen sixteen. And everything the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. Last night I was praying, Lord, what do you want me to say about this point? And everything the prudent acts with knowledge. And then I looked down and I read the verse and I thought, oh, that's right. That's what I'll say. And everything... The prudent acts with knowledge. That's all we need to say there. Proverbs twelve twenty three. Um, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Very much unlike the fool, the wise man isn't trying to share everything he knows or has heard with every person on planet Earth for his own glory. And then I was going to turn to Luke uh, 2, 8 through 19, but you can make a note of that if you want to. That's just about Mary. When the shepherds came and were and the angels... Um, and we're, we're glorifying God because of Jesus and, and praising him, she pondered the, the things in her heart. She didn't go share them with everyone she knew. 
Um, a wise man isn't constantly begging to be heard. He's, I would say he's constantly reflecting. Okay, and then Proverbs 15.2, right back to where we started. A wise man's speech points people to knowledge. Commend means to represent or speak in favor of something. So the verse is literally saying he, a wise man's words recommend knowledge. So, and as we know, knowledge comes from the Bible. So to recap this verse, the mouth of the wise gives and speaks of knowledge. The mouth of a fool gives out that which has no benefit to anyone, which is foolishness. Okay, so now we get to verse 3. And this verse stood out to me. I was kind of, we have, you know, verse 1 talking about the way we respond to people. And then verse 2 talking about the difference between a wise and a foolish man's speech. And then verse 4, which we'll just touch on in a minute, talking about the effect our words can have on people. So I got to this verse and it popped out. And it's, it kind of stands out because it doesn't seem like it fits with the first four verse, with the verse 1, 2, and 4 of Proverbs 15. So, so I asked myself, okay, well, there's got to be a reason that this is, this is here. What could it be? So um, I believe the verse is here for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it's reminding us that no matter where we are, who we're with, or what we're doing, we always have an audience of one. Verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. We're reminded that our words are always heard by God, even if no one else is around, or the words never leave our head. This should make us always desire to speak words that honor the Lord, build up, and point those around us to Christ. And then I'm, I believe there's another reason. And if you would turn to Job 31.4, I'm going to read Proverbs 15. Uh, three again here but job 15 so here's proverbs 15 three sorry the eyes of the lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good and then we have job 31 four which was a cross reference for this for proverbs 15 three and it says does not he see my ways and number all my steps so i believe that verse three is put here in proverbs 15 right in the middle of all this speech these how we should speak to remind us that God is the one who orchestrates our circumstances. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your books are written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So this verse is reminding us that our, that our days were planned by God, and then he is planning, he's orchestrating each thing that happens to us, and he reminds us of this right amidst all these verses talking about how we should respond when things happen to us, right? So um, my point in saying all this is that I believe um, Solomon, who, I, who we believe wrote, I, I believe wrote this proverb, um, is trying to convey the point that we can trust that God is using the events in our lives for our good, his glory, and then he's giving us all this wisdom in these verses and in the entire book of Proverbs about how we can respond to what happens to us during our everyday lives. Um, and then, and so, and then I just have at the end here, a lot of times we can get distracted by life or overwhelmed at it and worried about, oh, you know, when is the paycheck going to come in or what, what are we going to, what am I going to be doing a year from now? But we should have such a self-minded focus, such a single-minded, sorry, focus on God 
and how he's told us and shown us through Christ how to live, that we become obsessed with doing what he's commanded us to do. Um, and then I have just, if y'all, there's an app called Morning and Evening for anybody who has um, an iPhone or an iPad, and it's called, it's Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. And the I'm going to read one of what he, uh, I was reading in September, and this one came up. Um, and this is something that we can do practically um, for others with our speech. <clears throat> Excuse me. God employs his people to encourage one another. He did not say to an angel, Gabriel, my servant Joshua is about to lead my people into Canaan. Go, encourage him. God never works needless miracles. If his purposes can be accomplished by ordinary means, he will not use miraculous agency. Gabriel would not have been half so well fitted for the work as Moses. A brother's sympathy is more precious than an angel's embassy. The angel, swift of wing, had better known the master's bidding than the, pip, than the people's temper. An angel had never experienced the hardness of the road, nor seen the fiery serpents, nor had he led the stiff-necked multitude in the wilderness as Moses had done. We should be glad that God usually works for man by man. It forms a bond of brotherhood, and being mutually dependent on one another, we are fused more completely into one family. Brethren, take the text as God's message to you, and the text is encourage him in Deuteronomy 138. Labor to help others, and especially strive to encourage them. Talk cheerily to the young, and anxious inquire. Lovingly try to remove stumbling blocks out of his way. When you find a spark of grace in the heart, kneel down and blow it into flame. Leave the young believer to discover the roughness of the road by degrees, but tell him of the strength which dwells in God of the sureness of the promise, and of the charms of communion with Christ. Aim to comfort the sorrow and to animate the desponding. Speak a word in season to him that is weary and encourage those who are fearful to go on their way with gladness. God encourages you by his promises. Christ encourages you as he points to the heaven he has won for you, and the Spirit encourages you as he works in you to will and to do of his own will and pleasure. Imitate divine wisdom and encourage others according to the word of this evening. I thought that's just, I love that. That's just such a simple, practical thing that we can do to others to encourage them. I, he really, really wrote that well. Okay, so our last verse, verse 4 here. And I love, love, love the imagery of this verse. I, I think my mind works in photographs or something. But And Liza, Liza is a fantastic artist. And so... She's always drawing amazing pictures, and, and um, I didn't get her to illustrate this, but it's, I'm always thinking, like, okay, if Liza illustrated this, then what would it look like? So this is, would be fantastic. Um, so this, this verse, verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. It's a fantastic picture, paints a fantastic picture of the life-giving effect of our words. And then it also paints a picture of the devastating effect our words can have. Proverbs 12:18 reads, There is one whose harsh whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Okay, so I want to tell you the story of a man. And this man is a mighty warrior. He's a judge of Israel. Um, God used him to conquer kings and to set Israel free from oppression. And his name is Jephthah. And we can read his story in Judges chapter 11. Um, now, Jephthah has um, pursued the Midianites, uh, the, the Ammonites, um, 
and God has used him in, in great ways and will use him. He's also the one who we saw earlier who had the little confrontation with the Ephraimites and didn't respond well to them. Um, so, but Jephthah is a great example to us of someone who has a problem with rash words. Let's read chapter 11, verse 29. Jephthah's tragic vow is what this section is entitled. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands. And he struck them from Error to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And he eventually, it appears, I was reading in Matthew Henry, um, or maybe it was just my Bible footnotes, and they said something about maybe he didn't keep his vow or something, or maybe he just um, never let her marry or something like that. But the the verse... uh, 39 says, and at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. I believe that he really sacrificed her. Jephthah is a great example of a man who has an issue with rash, ill-thought-out words. And because he didn't think before he spoke, he caused the death of his daughter. He didn't, he didn't pray before he went and made a vow. He didn't, you know, say, Lord, what, what should I, if you'll give me the Ammonites, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a burnt offering of a goat. He didn't pray. He didn't seek anyone's advice. He just rashly made the vow in the moment. Um, and that's a lesson right there for us, I believe. Um, so let's look at the first half of verse 4 here. Let me turn back here to Proverbs 15. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. So the word gentle can also be translated healing, or the King James says a wholesome tongue or a wholesome word. Um, Can somebody read that in the King James? Thank you. So a wholesome tongue. Um, So this verse is paints a pretty literal picture, Um, and that is that when we speak gentle wholesome, uplifting words, people are going to flourish. When we speak negatively, <clears throat> they're going to they're gonna wither. Um, and studies have been done. I was looking up last night some different studies on, <clears throat> excuse me, on positive and negative words. And, um, and there have been multiple studies done, but I was reading one that was conducted on, on boys starting in 1984 when they were anywhere from ages 4 to 9 or something like that ending in uh, probably, I guess, the last couple of years. I don't know exactly when. And these boys, they studied these boys. There are 206 boys they studied. Some of them were from broken homes. Some of them were from great families. Um, and 
they found out that the way the boys were treated basically corresponded not only to when they began raising their children, but also their grandchildren. And it reminds me of the verse, the sins of the fathers will be visited to the third gener- second and third generation, I think. Um, and that's not a quote, but it's a paraphrase. So, um, so anyway, the study was in- really intriguing. Um, and uh, so... So anyway, the, just the, the power of our words has, has, it can change the world, really. The, our words have influence for not only this group right here, but for 20 years from now and from 100 years from now. So, and I think we've all, we've all seen different children. I was trying to find a study about, that talked about children who were spoken to negatively and positively, and when they grew up, what happened to them. I could never find anything. But we've all been around people, children who are, you know, whose parents, or seen them in the grocery store or something like that, who are talked to like they're worth nothing. And they're usually rebellious and, and um, kind of all over the place. And, and they have no respect, usually. So, and then vice versa, we can see a lot of, I mean, kids here are a great example of children who are spoken to positively and shown that they, va- shown that they are worth something through the words that people speak to them. And they're so much more upbeat and cheerful, and um, they'll be will, they'll be they'll know how to give out um, positive words when they're older. Okay, so in conclusion, let's turn to James three ten. So. This passage is why I have a healthy fear of my tongue. Okay? James 3.10. Actually, we're going to start uh, in um, verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, uh, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So we have a choice. We can choose to build people up or tear people down with the words that we say. And Lord willing, this is just, there's so much about our speech that, I mean, we could stay here for years, but I don't think y'all are willing to stay that long, and <clears throat> it might get a little tiring. So, but there's so much on the tongue out there, so much good literature on the tongue. Um, and I want to end with Psalm 19:14. Probably all know it. If you don't, underline it and memorize it, and highlight it. 
Proverbs 19.14. I hope that in whatever kind of situation we find ourselves, this might always be our prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, thank you so much for this day and for the privilege and the blessing it is that we can all come together to fellowship and to study your word freely and openly, God. Lord, I pray today that we would use our words to honor others, to glorify you and honor you, God. Lord, I pray this week that you would use our words to build others up, that you would use our words to point people to you, God. Lord, I pray that Psalm 1914 will always be um, on the tip of our mouth, on our hearts, so that we might honor and glorify you, God. Lord, as we go, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.